Welcome to this podcast from Christchurch London. For more information and resources, please go to ChristchurchLondon.org. Kick off our don'ts. Thank you. Well, I think we all learned something about my name then, didn't we? Is that a fact, really? Ah, thanks, Mum and Dad. I think they like the sound of it, so uh, that's probably it. Um, Hello, everyone. How are you all this morning? Are you very well? Fantastic. Are you happy it's a bank holiday weekend? You get to stay up very late on a Sunday. That's cool, isn't it? Um, Well, thank you, Nengi, for the introduction. Uh, As Nengi said, my name is Joel. I'm here to conclude our sermon series on the story of Jonah. Uh, And I know that you're all very caught up with the story so far, because who misses church in August? Am I right? No one, no one. And if, by chance, you did happen to miss a church Sunday in August, then I know that you're avid listeners to the Christchurch London broadcast, where you've caught up on all the sermons in this series. Am I right? Ah, yes. Okay, a lot of the front row is saying yes there. I can't hear anything from the back. But just in case you're not, let's do a quick recap of the story. So we'll jump right in. So we first meet our prophet Jonah um, in, you guessed it, chapter 1, where God tells him that he would like Jonah to go to Nineveh. Now, a bit of context here. This is around the 8th century BC, before Christ, and uh, Jonah is an Israelite. He's part of the people of Israel. They're God's people. But at this point in history, where we find them, they're quite divided. And they're into two kingdoms, and those two kingdoms are tussling for dominance against the Assyrian Empire, which is known through history as being a a violent and barbaric empire. Um, uh, If you're looking for a source on that, it's Liam. He said that last week. Uh, So, and there is a capital city in Assyria, and uh, can anyone guess the name of that capital city, the key city? Nineveh, that's it, there you go. So when God says, Jonah, go to Nineveh, what he's really saying is, go to your violent enemy city. Uh, And so naturally, Jonah has his concerns on that one, and he decides to take a slightly different approach. He gets on a boat and goes to a place called Tarshish, which is one of the geographically furthest places you can be from Nineveh. So it's not just that he doesn't want to go to the city, it's that he really, really doesn't want to go to the city. But while he's on the boat, a storm comes, just to prove that you can't really run from God without literally shaking things up. Uh, And after a brief moral crisis from the sailors, they decide to, to calm the storm. What they'll do is they'll throw Jonah into the sea naturally. Uh, And you would be forgiven for thinking that is the end of the story there. Good, clean message. Don't run from God. But proving Ronan Keating right, life is a roller coaster, and Jonah is having a whale of a time. Uh, No, Bible scholars would disagree with me. It wasn't a whale. It was a big fish that comes and scoops up Jonah, and there he spends three days, sounds familiar, three days inside the belly of a fish. Now, I don't know about you guys, But the last time that happened to me, I found the whole experience quite enlightening. And apparently, it's similar to Jonah. He decides to reflect on the error of his ways, recommit himself to God inside the belly of the fish. And no sooner than doing that is he vomited onto the shore, makes his way to Nineveh with a message, repent of your wickedness or you will be destroyed in 40 days. He does not mince his words. But joyfully, Nineveh does repent of their wickedness. And I've got the end of chapter 3. This is the last verse in chapter 3 coming up here. Verse 10. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he threatened. Good news, huh? What a brilliant three-act story. And so let's turn to chapter four now. We'll read it all together. The words are going to come up on the screen behind me, uh, and we can listen to our epilogue or our happily ever after or our something else. We'll see. Okay, verse one, chapter four. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong, and he became angry. Not a great start. He prays to the Lord, isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? 
This is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. But the Lord replied, Is it right for you to be angry? Jonah had gone out and sat down at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade and waited to see what would happen to the city. Then the Lord God provided a leafy plant and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the plant. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm which chewed the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, it would be better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? It is, he said, and I'm so angry, I wish I were dead. But the Lord said, you have been concerned about the plant, though you did not tend it nor make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and also many animals? Well, a lot going on there. Most notably, we find out Jonah really, really loves his plants. But it's also hard not to read the end of Jonah's story, the last chapter in the book, and feel a little bit disappointed at Jonah. This man who's gone on this huge journey, seen a whole city repent of their wickedness, spent three days inside a big fish, and he seems like he's the same man that we met at the very beginning of the story, a man who disagreed with God and decided to run it the other way. And now at the end of the story, we see that he still disagrees with God, and he's very, very angry about the course of action God's taken with Nineveh. And actually, the beginning of chapter 4 is a throwback right to the beginning of the story, because it's only now, at the beginning of chapter 4, in Jonah's prayer, that we realize why he didn't want to go to Nineveh in the first place. You see, it says it, it says it in verse 2, he prayed to the Lord, isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? This is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew you're a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. So all along, it wasn't that Jonah was scared of going to a, a violent enemy city. It was, that God, it was that Jonah was scared God was going to be true to his word. And here we see one of the first of the many dictonomies in Jonah's character the conflicts at his heart, where he's kind of right about something and he's kind of wrong because he's got a strength here. He knows God very, very well. We see that in his prayer. He knows that God is a gracious God, a compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, relenting from sending calamity. That is a strength to know God intimately. And yet somehow he's managed to funnel that strength into a weakness, his pride, his national pride about being an Israelite. He doesn't like the fact that Nineveh is going to be saved. He never wanted Nineveh to be saved because they're an enemy of Israel. And now it's all coming to head, and he is having a bit of a moment. But my question to all of us today is, have we not all had a moment like this? Have we not all been a bit of a Jonah the Mona? Do we not all have moments where we feel like we could do a much better job of being God than God? Like at the very heart of our kind of raw conflicts, it is a disagreement. We feel like an injustice has been done. And that's, what, that's, that's where Jonah is right now. He feels like he's been hard done by as an Israelite. My God, who promised to, to be with my people, is now saving my enemy. And I think we can all relate to that. We have all had experiences where we feel like grace to someone else is a personal injustice to us. I think we see this every day very trivially. Why is it that the loud and, and rude and confrontational people uh, on the streets or in public transport or in the cinema 
are allowed to get away with their antisocial behavior and their screens in a very dark room, and yet they can go unchallenged. Or if they're challenged, it often feels like they go completely undisciplined. And yet who's to lose out in that moment? It's the people that follow the rules, the people that are doing what they need to be doing right. I think we see this more broadly. I think closer to our hearts, we can see, we can see this in bullies. Why is it that bullies are allowed to triumph in our friendship groups, in our workplaces, our, our government systems, some to the highest stations of the world, and we can feel powerless to stop them unless we succumb to their tactics of bullying? And we feel tempted to, but then we come to church on a Sunday and we're told to turn thy cheek. And we're told to pray for our enemies, to love our enemies, to show them grace. And although we might never say it out loud or construct this sentence, we might think in the back of our hearts, haven't they already received enough grace? You see, Jonah is being very dramatic here, and that can't be excused. I mean, he is praying fast and loose about the prayers of 120,000 people, and we're going to get to that. But at the very heart of his moral dilemma is something I think we can all understand. Ah, but luckily, God has a plan for Jonah. Uh, did I say plan? I meant God has a plant for Jonah. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, so that's what we're going to look at today. We're going to look at God's response to Jonah's prayer right at the beginning of the chapter, this plant and the back and forth, the dialogue they have around the plant. And we're going to hopefully just tease out some ways that God's love for people is revealed compared to Jonah's heart for people. And then from that, I hope, I hope that we can take some insights and some challenges that would help us to love our enemies uh, and to, to aid us in the difficulty we face in doing that. So I'm going to split the rest of my time up into two sections. Uh, uh, so they're going to be on God loves people deeply and God loves people freely. And so we're going to move right on into the first one, God loves people deeply. So after Jonah's initial prayer at the beginning of chapter 4, we see that he heads east of the city, okay? And he sets up base to watch Nineveh, which clearly say, says that he's still thinking that God might destroy the city. He's still thinking God might realize the error of his ways and, uh, and destroy Nineveh. And that's where God sends this plant. And Jonah's very, very happy about the plant. Uh, it says that he's glad, but in the ESV it says that he's exceedingly glad, which is worth pointing out because Jonah is rarely exceedingly glad about anything in the whole of his book. So he really, really likes this plant, but the, the happiness is short-lived because then God sends the worm to destroy the plant and then a scorching east wind and it discomforts Jonah. And then in his faintness, he cries out, it would be better for me to die than to live. Now let's pause here because we've heard Jonah say this before. Okay, we heard Jonah say those exact words five verses ago. Okay, in verse three, he said, now Lord, take away my life for it is better for me to die than to live. And that was in response to the news that Nineveh was going to be saved. And now in verse 8, he's saying he wanted to die and said, it would be better for me to die than to live. And that's in response to the plant dying. So what does that say? It says that Jonah cares more about the life of a plant than the life of a whole city, which is kind of crazy, isn't it? I mean, there is no comparison to, to the life of a plant that's been around for a couple of hours to that of a city with 120,000 people. It's absolutely mad. It's ridiculous. But we have to ask, how does Jonah get to the point where he feels like they're comparable, where he feels like he would choose a plant over the life of a city. And I put it to you, that was because Jonah is being incredibly selfish. He is looking at everything in front of him through a lens of how it benefits him. Does it benefit him or does it inhibit him toward his comfort? And we know Jonah likes the plant because it says that he was exceedingly glad. But Nineveh, well, that's an enemy city. That's an enemy of his people. So he's not going to be exceedingly glad to hear that that has been saved. And many of you might say, very aptly, well done, that the playing field has changed. 
Because at the end of chapter 3, Nineveh has repented of its wickedness, and therefore it's no longer the same threat that it was to Israel. But I'd put it to you, and I've done my research on chapter 4, so you can listen to me. I'd put it to you that Nineveh repenting is worse than Nineveh being wicked as it was. You see, we touched on this earlier on when we looked at the context of the story. But at this point in history, Jonah's people, the Israelites, are divided. And Jonah's people, the Israelites, from their inception, have always been defined by their God, Yahweh. He gave them his name, his love, his compassion and promise that they would be a nation unrivaled by any other nation in the world. And yet now they're divided. Through their selfishness and greed, they've fought amongst themselves. And so they're not in a very good place. And it looks like they're actively working against God's great plan that he has for them. And so it could very well be, it's very plausible that Jonah was thinking that that the destruction of Nineveh was going to be a wake-up call to his own people. Look what happens when you disobey God. Look what happens when you're wicked. And now God saved Nineveh. And so not only has Jonah and the Israelites lost out on a lesson of humility, but it's kind of worse because they've also been globally humiliated. Because the enemy city... The violent, barbaric people of Nineveh have proved themselves more capable of obeying God and earning his compassion than the Israelites have. And so this leaves Jonah angry at God, saying, how could you do this to the people of Israel? And again, we kind of see that odd conflict with Jonah again, where he's kind of right and he's kind of wrong, because his intentions aren't wrong here. He's got a desperate, passionate love for his people. But yet somehow somehow he's missing the point because he's, he's... He's been so blindsided by that that he's managed to to skew his thinking into devaluing the Ninevites to less than a plant. But that is not how God views the Ninevites. We see that at the end of the chapter when God responds to Jonah, uh, his anger about the plant, and then he reveals how the plant is a metaphor for Nineveh. And then he says, this is verse 11, And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left? Dash, and also many animals. You see, unlike Jonah, God is not cocooned in his love for Israel. And he does love them. Let's not miss that point. He does love them. He loves them more than Jonah because they are his people. It's just that he's not blinded so much that he can't see the reality of the situation, that Nineveh is a whole city of people. And he says it. He refers to Nineveh as a great city. So it's not just Nineveh, a great city. And then he says, in which there are more than 120,000 people. See, he numbers them. Right from the outset, when he talks about Nineveh, he, he's revealing that he sees them as individuals. He doesn't see them as the whole city. And then he has these, these two additions. He says, who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and also many animals. So let's look at them. Who cannot tell their right hand from their left. The message version has this one down as 120,000 childlike people who don't yet know right from wrong. You see, immediately God is tackling Jonah's questions of morality and justice and whether this is the right thing. Because whereas Jonah is looking at the wicked actions of Nineveh, and he's saying, well, they, they deserve to die. God is saying, I'm seeing behind the actions. I'm seeing their hearts. And he's, he's seeing an innocence there. And then he has this, this second edition, and also many animals, which is kind of an odd way to end the whole book of Jonah, isn't it? Just with a dash, and also many animals. Bit of a shout out to vegetarianism there, isn't it? Very eco-friendly book with a plant in. Uh, but lots of different translations has this one down as, and also many cattle. And I think that is, again, really, really important. Because remember, this is 8th century BC. Cattle aren't just animals, although there is something to said for them being lots of innocent animals there as well. But cattle is livelihood. Cattle is wealth. Cattle is status at this point. 
So when he says, and also many animals, and also much cattle, what he's doing is he's, he's showing how in complete opposition to Jonah, who is seeing no value in Nineveh at all, God is searching the city for every ounce of value that it has. So the question on us is, God loves deeply, do we love deeply? When we struggle to love others, when we struggle to love our enemies, do we love them deeply? Or are we doing what Jonah does, looking at them through the lens of whether they affect us, how they benefit us? Do we see them as individuals? And not just beating hearts, but do we see the intentions behind every action they make? Do we ever question whether, whether the action that we've seen equals the intention that went on behind it? And do we see them with people, as people with lives, with livelihoods? Or do we have a problem with someone at work and forget completely that they have a home life of their own and we don't know what's going on behind it? See, God loves people deeply. He builds up a whole picture of them. And from that, he draws a love for them. Jonah doesn't. You'll remember in 2015, we saw the largest migration, migration crisis of our time with over a million migrants and refugees crossing into Europe due to political unrest, uh, which turned into war in their countries. And naturally, the influx of people caused a political divide in how best to deal with that crisis. And as I'm sure many of us remember, all the, the newspapers and the news feeds and our conversations orientated about this for a good amount of time. But you may also remember that as those conversations and debates progressed, a dark rhetoric started to emerge. A rhetoric that referred to migrants crossing our borders as uh, rats, leeches, animals, diseases, and more. People made them out to, to be manipulative, exploitive people who were coming here to steal our privileges and our benefits. Now, this isn't being raised at all to make a political statement, okay? But it's worth noting, it's worth remaining. in fact, it should never be disputed that the people buying passage on overcrowded boats, the people trying to swim oceans only to drown and end up on our shores, were people. They were humans. And yet, often they were referred to much less than that. And whilst I, I, I don't think, or I certainly hope, that no one here would ever uh, view a migrant as any less than a human, there were people that did. And I, I would wager to you that those people probably fell into the same mistake Jonah did. They were looking at the whole crisis, every migrant, through a lens of how it affected them, whether it benefited them. And that allowed them to skew their thinking on it so much that they devalued them to less than a plant. We have to watch how we love people. We have to be sure that we are loving them deeply. Jonah didn't do that. God also loves people freely. We'll move right on to the second point. You see, Jonah didn't love people freely either. He thought love had to be earned. He thought love was deserved. It was more of an exchange. You did something and then you earned love. And he looked at the Ninevites and he said, they don't deserve love based on their actions. And again, we see this odd conflict at the heart of Jonah, where he's kind of right and he's kind of wrong. Because actually there is a, a case to be made about whether the Ninevites did deserve to be saved. But here's where Jonah's wrong. Does anyone ever deserve the love of God? Does Jonah deserve the love of God? I mean, look at him now after the whole story. And here he is saying, I want to die. I completely disagree with you. Does that sound like someone who deserves the love of God against his own measurements with Nineveh? You see, Jonah had forgotten that God's love is often, always, given freely. Even to him, God had reminded him of it. 
but he didn't listen and he chose to remain stubborn. And this God tackles as well. You see, when, Jonah, when God first responds to Jonah's anger about the plant, he says, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. So you see, straight away, God tackles Jonah's sense of entitlement. The fact that he's forgotten about grace, the fact that he's forgotten that he, too, is in response of a free gift. And, and this reveals Jonah's hypocrisy, right? Because he, here he is being angry that God has, has, has rid him of a free gift, and yet at the same time being angry that God wants to give a free gift to someone else. Jonah has completely misunderstood that God gives his love freely. And what's really interesting here is to step back from this whole story of Jonah and to look at where Jonah is in chapter 4, the man that we see, and to compare it to the story of another man that comes into frame 900 years later. And we see this odd parallel of stories come about. You see, whereas Jonah misunderstands God's free gift of love, there's another man who embodies it, who becomes it, Jesus. You see, at the end of Jonah's story, we see him leave the city of Nineveh, condemning it, hoping it will be destroyed, angry at the fact that they've repented of their evil and that salvation is no longer just for him and his people. And yet at somewhat the end of Jesus' story, we see him going into a city, one that doesn't repent of their wickedness, one that through their wickedness and corrupt systems sentences him to death, and he goes willingly and dies because he wants to offer them a free gift of love. Because where he was the only one entitled to that free gift of love, he wants to give it to everyone else. And what does he say as he hangs on the cross? He says, forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. Which sounds familiar to God's own words on Nineveh when he said, they are a people who don't know their right hand from their left. See, God loves people deeply, but he also loves people freely. And we need to strive to do the same. But it isn't easy, is it? It's very, very hard. And in fact, I don't actually think that this is a very original message. I think that the, the, the idea that God loves people deeply and freely is at the very center of our Christian belief. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. I think many of us know this message very, very well. But I think there's something else of note in the story of Jonah. There's something else to take away from here. Because I've been a Christian my whole life, and yet how often do I take grace for granted? I do it all the time. How often do I forget or justify a reason why I shouldn't love people deeply and why I shouldn't love them freely? I do that all the time, and apparently so does Jonah. And have you ever stopped at the story of Jonah and notices where, and notice where he actually bows out of his own story? His last line. We see it. His last line is, It is, and I'm so angry, I wish I could die. I'm so angry, I wish I were dead. That's how Jonah leaves his whole story. And of course, the story kind of goes on. It ends with that question of whether God should save the city of Nineveh, which is actually quite brilliant because it's not just a question to Jonah about whether Nineveh should be saved. It's a question to us that we as the reader need to take on board. Should, should God not save our own version of Nineveh? But Jonah just bows out a couple of verses later, uh, earlier saying, I wish I were dead. But here's the thing. That may be where the, the pages on the where the words on the page end, but it's not the end of Jonah's story. You see, he may say that I wish I were dead, but it doesn't actually say that he died. So he must have gone on living. And what did he do with the rest of his life? Well, we don't know for certain anything. 
But what we do know is that he told his story, right? Because the story's here with really intimate, isolated moments, you know, a, a prayer in the belly of a fish. He went on and told his story. And what's really interesting looking at this is that he told his story really, really honestly with all of his selfishness and all of his stubbornness and all of his greed. He didn't change anything. I mean, if I was going to tell my story and I knew that it was going to, to influence or encourage people to go on after me, I would at least make myself taller. But Jonah, <laughs> he did none of that. He put down all of his weakness in his story. And I think that there is a hint of redemption in that. I wonder whether in that there's an understanding that God knows we're up and down. God knows we struggle to love people deeply and to love people freely. Because sometimes I look at the story of Jonah. I look at how up and down he is with his emotions, how, how up and down he is in his relationship with God. He's with God and, he's, and he doesn't want God. He's angry at God and he's for God. I look at, I look at Jonah who is right and wrong so many times at the same time. And I think, man, for a story that involves a man and a belly of a fish for three days, it's one of the most realistic and reflective stories of my own relationship with God. That is my relationship with God. I'm up and I'm down all the time. And I, I put it to you by the basic nods in the room that a lot of people feel the same way. See, there is an encouragement to take from Jonah that although he, it feels like he ends off exactly the same as he was when, we start, when he started, God still used him. God still used him to go on that whole story. And God still used him afterwards to tell his story to encourage others. God loves people deeply and he loves people freely. And often, often we can focus on that when we need to be reminded to love our enemies. But often we need to focus on that when we're reminded of, of how God loves us too. It's not just that he loves our enemies deeply and freely. He loves us deeply and freely. Maybe the band want to come back up. The whole story of Jonah, especially in this chapter, do you ever see God come down fast and furious at Jonah? Do you ever see God tell him exactly how off the mark he is? No, for the whole chapter, you see God asking questions to Jonah. And you know God doesn't need to ask questions. He's God. He knows the answers to questions. So when he asks questions, it's, it's, it's for the person, isn't it? And that's how he deals with Jonah, patiently, kindly. Because he loves Jonah deeply and freely. And sometimes that's what we need to remember as a motivation, as momentum to push ourselves when we're struggling to love others deeply and freely. And that is... My short but sweet, but let's face it, also a powerful message today. <laughs> Am I right? Thank you very much. Thank you. In case you can't hear on the podcast, they clapped there. Um, <laughs> fantastic. Shall we all stand? And shall I pray for us as the band come up and prepare to finish off with a song? Father, we thank you for the way that you love us. We thank you that even though we take it for granted, that even though we forget very often, that even though we end up judging others and dictating where you should show love and where you shouldn't, we thank you that you love us anyway. We thank you that you love us deeply and freely. And we thank you that your heart is for everyone else in this city, in this country, in the world to know that you love them deeply and freely. And you offer us the opportunity to be used, just like Jesus was, as your vessel in this world to show people that love, to be that gift of love 
to people. And so, Father, where we face challenges, where we face difficulties in loving our enemies, I pray that, that we would be reminded and humbled that you deal with us kindly, patiently, reasonably, even when we're being unreasonable, and that you love us deeply and freely. And I, I pray, Father, that we all feel that this morning. I pray that as we spend time worshiping to close our service today, that you'd remind us all that you love us with all our mistakes, with all our imperfections, that you love us even when we keep making those mistakes and we keep making those imperfections. And I pray that that spurs us on to think of the people that we struggle to love and to love them. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information or for further podcasts and downloads, please visit ChristChurchLondon.org.